trying to disturb the baby Jesus up here. Thanks, Dave. Well, good morning, everybody. A couple of years ago, I, uh, I had quite a shock. I came home from work at lunchtime, and as I normally do, I uh, went to the mailbox and checked the mail, and uh, unfortunately, that particular day, I had some credit card bills in the mail, and, and uh, I opened up my, uh, the envelope for the Discover card bill, and uh, I'm looking over my, uh, my balance sheet, and I had a, uh, a huge surprise. Uh, literally a huge surprise. My Discover card bill was about $12,000 more than I expected it to be. And, uh, and I'm looking at this thing thinking, this can't be right. And uh, so I started looking down through the charges, and, and uh, pretty soon I discovered, uh, you know, there's my gas bill, my dinner out at the restaurant. But then right below that, here was uh, a bunch of charges for airline tickets, uh, a bunch of fitness equipment, all kinds of stuff from somewhere down in Texas. And, uh, and I had no knowledge of any of this stuff. And somebody had stolen my identity. Somebody somehow had gotten my personal information, my credit card information, uh, and someone down in Texas ended up uh, racking up a huge bill, over $12,000, claiming to be Jason Carlson. They stole my identity. Now, uh, identity theft is actually a crime that has uh, become pretty prominent, unfortunately, in recent years. In fact, uh, it's actually the fastest growing crime in America today. Last year alone, there were over 9.9 .9 million victims of identity theft. And uh, in the last few years, uh, annually, uh, identity theft is responsible for about $5 billion in, uh, in wrongful purchases. And, uh, you know, you really feel violated when somebody steals your identity like that. But the reality is, friends, is that identity theft has been around since the beginning of time. In fact, it's really the oldest crime in the history of the world. You see, Satan, our adversary, is the original identity thief. Jesus says in John 10, verse 9, that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You see, Satan wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill your hope, and he wants to ultimately destroy your soul. That's who he is, and that's what he does. And as the great identity thief, Satan wants to rob you of your proper understanding of your identity and your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. He wants to rob you of your identity and purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ. I was speaking at a youth retreat uh, a couple summers ago up north, and uh, during the afternoon on Saturday, uh, the kids were all out playing their games and having fun, and, and uh, I noticed off to the side a uh, picnic table uh, in the midst of all this activity and all the action going on at the camp, I noticed this uh, lone girl, teenage girl, sitting at this picnic table off by herself. And she just looked sort of sad. And, and, uh, and so I walked up to her and, and I said, hey, you mind if I sit with you? She just kind of nodded her head down at the table. I said, what's your name? And she said, I don't have a name. I said, what do you mean you don't have a name? Everybody has a name. She says, no, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. 
You know, friends, I think we've all been tempted at times to feel that way. Like we're nobody. But I want to tell you something this morning. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. From the greatest identity thief of them all. Our adversary, Satan. See, the reality is today, friends, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've received that great gift of Christmas. As a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you have an amazing identity. Your life is of ultimate value. And on top of that, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been given an incredible cost to live for. And this morning, we're going to continue a series that we've been in in recent weeks through the book of 1 Peter. And as we look at this book of 1 Peter this morning and the section we're going to be in, we're going to find three transformational truths that God has revealed to us about our proper identity, our true identity, and our true purpose in Jesus Christ. Now, just a quick review. The book of 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, and he was writing this book to churches throughout the Middle East. It was a letter that was intended to be passed among a number of these new churches that were growing shortly after the time of Jesus Christ throughout the Middle East. And the Christians during this time were under intense persecution. See, the Roman government and the Emperor Nero was actively oppressing and persecuting the Christian faith. On top of that, you had the Jewish faith that was trying to suppress this new growing religion that claimed to believe in the Messiah. And the Jews were trying to suppress the growth of this faith. And then on top of that, these new Christians, they had just the daily struggles of living as a new kind of people in the midst of a pagan culture that didn't understand why they didn't participate in the things that everybody else participated in. Why they didn't do and live the way everybody else lived. And so Peter was writing to these new Christians to encourage them, to buoy their faith, to give them hope to encourage them to push on in following Jesus Christ. And one of the things that Peter needed to remind them of was their true identity and purpose as followers of Jesus Christ. Because like all of us, they were tempted by the same pressures. They were tempted to question who they really were. Do I really matter? Does God truly have a purpose for my life? And so Peter reveals here in the passage we're going to look at today, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, three transformational truths. And why do I call them transformational? I call them transformational this morning, friends, because these truths that we're going to look at today, they literally have the ability to affect every area of your life. They are truly transformational. And my prayer for you today is as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we talk about these three transformational truths, my prayer for you today is that the truths that we look at would be more than just head knowledge for you this morning, but that these truths would would implant themselves in the deepest core of your being, that you would come to know and believe and experience the truths that we're going to talk about. They are that significant. And that's what I've been praying for you this morning as we come to this passage. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Follow along as I read this. Peter says, But you, speaking to the believers of the church, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Powerful passage of Scripture. And here in this passage, we find three transformational truths that Peter wants us to know, that God wants us to know about our true identity and calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Transformational truth number one this morning that I want to highlight from our passage today Number one is this, in Christ, friends, in Christ you are somebody. In Christ you are somebody. Take a look at verse 9 again. Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Peter identifies four truths about who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. And number one, he says you are a chosen people. Now friends, who among us here doesn't want to be chosen? One of our most basic human desires is the yearning to belong, to be chosen. You know, it begins on the playground when you're a little kid and hoping that you'll be picked for the dodgeball team or the game of hide-and-seek. And then when you're in junior high and high school, you, you want to be chosen by that special girl or guy to... Go to the dance at school that weekend. You know, later in high school, as you're applying for colleges, you want to be chosen. You want to receive that acceptance letter in the mail that the college that you want to attend has chosen you. When you graduate from college, of course, we have our job interviews, and we all want to be chosen by that company that we want to work for. And then ultimately, I think for many of us, our greatest longing is to find that special someone to be chosen, to be loved by someone. We all have a desire to be chosen. One of my favorite uh, Christmas stories, one of my favorite secular Christmas carols is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. How many of you are fans of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer out there? You know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it's a great story. It's an interesting story, a great song. In fact, uh, the story behind it itself is really uh, a very uh, interesting tale. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was a story created in 1939 by Montgomery Ward Department Store. See, Montgomery Ward, you know, they would have Santa Claus in their store, and the kids would come and sit on Santa's lap, you know, and and, uh, tell Santa what they wanted for Christmas. Well, Montgomery Ward, what they did is they created the story of Rudolph, and it was a little comic book that they would pass out to kids after they sat on Santa's lap. And they would go home with the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as just a little gift that they would get after visiting Santa Claus. Well, 10 years later, in 1949, Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, he took the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and he set it to music, and it became an instant bestseller. And a classic song that we all still sing today, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? Everybody loves Rudolph. And why do we love Rudolph? Friends, we love the story of Rudolph because it's a story about the power of being chosen. You know, remember, all of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Rudolph join in any of the reindeer games. 
But then, one foggy Christmas Eve, what happened? Santa came. Santa came and he chose Rudolph. Rudolph's a story about the power of being chosen. And the reason why I think it resonates with people is because all of us can relate to that. That longing to be chosen. You know, we're all Rudolph in one way or another. Interestingly enough, the song, the story of Rudolph, was offered first to uh, be turned into a song by Dinah Shore, and she passed it over. And then it was offered to Bing Crosby, and he passed it over. Isn't that incredible? A song all about being chosen was passed over by two of the greatest recording artists of that day until finally Gene Autry saw the promise and the potential and turned it into the song, the classic that we all know. But we all want to be chosen. We all want to belong. And where does this longing to be chosen come from? Friends, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. You see, we all have this desire to be chosen, this desire to belong, because God created us with this desire, with this longing. He set eternity in our hearts. And what that means is that we are going to search for meaning and identity and purpose in, in all kinds of pursuits and in all kinds of relationships. We're longing to be chosen, but ultimately that longing will only be fulfilled when we find it in the one source of ultimate fulfillment in a relationship with Jesus Christ, our creator God. God created you with that longing. And as followers of Jesus Christ, the great promises that we've seen this morning in this passage from 1 Peter is that, number one, Peter says, you are a chosen people. God has chosen us. And what has he chosen us to? Well, Peter says here in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people. Now, the word he uses there in the Greek, the word for people, is the word genos. And it's a word that means beginnings. It's the word where we get our word for the book of Genesis from. Genesis meaning beginnings. It's the word genos. And genos actually is a word that has ethnic and racial connotations to it. It's talking about a cultural group, a people group. And Peter here says that we are a chosen people. God has chosen us. Followers of Jesus Christ, members of the church, God has chosen us to be a part of a new and unique race of people. Not a race based on the color of our skin or our nationality, our family background, but God has chosen us to be a part of a people based solely on our identity rooted in Him. And it comes by His divine invitation. As Christians, friends, we have been adopted into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are God's chosen people, a new race of people because of God's divine invitation. I don't know if any of you ever had this experience before, but uh, if you've ever been on a missions trip to a different part of the world, how many of you have ever been around the world and, and had the chance to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ? A number of you, right? Friends, have you had that experience of meeting somebody from a completely different country, a completely different cultural background? Maybe they don't look like you, they don't talk like you, they eat different foods. I mean, everything about their life is totally different, except they too are a follower of Jesus Christ. They have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, it's really interesting. I've traveled to 30 countries around the world. And no matter where I've been, six continents all over the world, Every time I meet a brother and sister in Christ, there's an instantaneous bond there. 
There's an instantaneous connection. And why is that? It's because they are part of God's chosen people. It doesn't matter if our skin color is different. It doesn't matter if we speak a different language. There's an instant connection there because we are a part of the family of God. And friends, this is really incredible. This is actually just a foreshadowing of what we're going to experience in eternity. In the book of Revelations, John had a vision of heaven and what was going to take place in the end times. And John, in his vision of heaven, he says in Revelation 7-9, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe and nation and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, John saw you in that vision. You were in that vision. John was given a vision of the future, and he was seeing into the future followers of Jesus Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and you were in that group. And one day, we will all stand before the throne of the King of Kings, worshiping him together. We are God's chosen people. What a privilege. What an experience that's going to be. The second thing Peter tells us here in verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter says, not only are we a chosen people, but he says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Now, this is actually an incredible identification for believers that Peter's using here. In our world today, we don't necessarily grasp the full implications of what Peter is doing here in calling us a royal priesthood. Let me just kind of explain the significance of this for you. First of all, Peter here is combining two Old Testament offices, the office of the king and the office of the priesthood. Peter is combining these two Old Testament offices that were never united. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish faith, there was no such thing as a royal priesthood. There was royalty and there were priests, but there was no such thing as a royal priesthood. In fact, God had given specific instructions to keep the offices of priest and king separate and distinct. But here, Peter's combined these two things. You are a royal priesthood. Secondly, Peter's identifying us, followers of Jesus Christ, with two very prominent inherited positions in the ancient world the position of king and priest. You see, these were positions that were based on a person's lineage or ancestry. They weren't available to just the average person. You had to be born into the right family to be a king or to be a priest. Thirdly here, Peter, in identifying us as royal, Peter is saying that we as believers have a unique status Amongst all other people in the world, we have a unique status because we know the king. And we have special privileges that come as a result of that status. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had an experience of receiving special privileges because you were with the right person? Anybody ever had that kind of experience before? You know, you know the right person and special privileges came with it? Just this past summer... I, was, uh, I was, uh, had the privilege of speaking for the Seattle Seahawks football team up in Green Bay before their preseason game with, uh, with the Green Bay Packers. I know the chaplain of the Seattle Seahawks, and I've had a chance to actually preach for the team a number of times over the years, and I've gotten to meet a number of the players and actually have become friends with a couple of uh, the coaches who are believers 
uh, on the Seattle Seahawks. And, and uh, so our family, we went up to Green Bay, and we were staying at the Radisson Hotel, the same hotel that the Seahawks were at. And uh, the evening came where I was to speak to the team, and it was interesting because I was sitting down in the lobby, and uh, they, had, uh, you know, they had the chairs and the couches down there, and there was this whole group, about 20, 30 people, autograph hounds, who were waiting to try to get autographs and pictures of the Seattle Seahawks. And the security in the hotel, they had, uh, they had barriered off a whole section of the hotel that was, wasn't accessible to the average person. Uh, it was only for the team, the Seahawks. You couldn't get in there. And these autograph hounds, they were pressed up against these ropes, you know, trying to get autographs, trying to take pictures, trying to get a glimpse of the players. And here I was, I'm sitting out here in these chairs amongst all these autograph hounds who didn't have any access to the team. You know, they were kept away by these barriers by the police and the security guards there. And I think they're looking at me as if I'm just another one of these autograph hounds. You know, I got my notebook. They think I'm probably just, you know, looking for autographs. Well, all of a sudden, this official from the Seattle Seahawks, he comes out and he walks past the barrier and he says, is Jason Carlson here? And I raised my hand, I stood up and he said, would you come with me, please? And you should have seen the look on these autograph hounds' faces, right? I mean, here I am, you know, this guy who they think is just this average nobody, right? And all of a sudden, I get to walk right through the barriers. And uh, this guy hands me a badge, a Seahawks team uh, access badge. And we walk back into the corridors that were available only to the team. And, and uh, the security guard, we came up to a, a hallway, and the security guard goes, who's this guy? And, uh, and the uh, guy from the team, he said, well, he's with the coach. And they brought me back into the hallway where the teams were having their meeting rooms, where the team's banquet room was all set up. And I got to hang out with the Seattle Seahawks that evening because I was with the coach. I had the right status because I knew the coach. And friends, that's what Peter's saying here today. Peter's saying that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have status. You have status because you know the king. You're with the king. Lastly, here in calling us a priesthood, Peter is speaking to the unique access to God that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, in Old Testament Judaism, as is true in many religions still today, it was only the priestly class that had direct access to God. However, friends, in Jesus Christ, Peter says we become a royal priesthood. And as Hebrews 4.16 says, because of Jesus Christ and our position as royal priests in him, Hebrews 4.16 says that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, as royal priests, you can approach God with confidence. As Christians, you are somebody. You are a royal priesthood. You have status and access to God. Friends, this is no small thing. Theologian Scott McKnight, writing in the NIV Bible Commentary, he says this, he says, To become a Christian is to be raised to the ultimate height and status because we suddenly become children of the God of the universe and we have direct access to him because we are his children. Wow. Now just meditate on that for a while and try not to be blown away. You have status and access to God. Thirdly, here in verse 9, Peter says, you are a holy nation. 
Now, we're going to talk about this concept further next week, so I don't want to give away too much here. However, when Peter says we are a holy nation, the Greek word for holy here is hagios, and it means to be set apart. Now, what's important to note here is that Peter is saying that this is who we are now. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been set apart. Friends, this implies that there's something different about us. In fact, some of you might have translations of the scriptures that might even use the term, we are a peculiar people. We are a peculiar people. I like that translation. We're a peculiar people. We're going to talk more about what that means next week. Fourthly, here in verse 9, Peter says, you are God's special possession. Maybe your translation says, a people belonging to God. Now, believe it or not, what takes us in English a few words to express, in the original Greek Peter used, he only had to share a single word to make the same point. The phrase here, a people belonging to God, or maybe your translation says God's special possession. In the original Greek that Peter used, that was a single word. He only needed one word to say you are God's special possession. And the single word Peter used was a Greek word, peripoiesis. Everybody say that with me, peripoiesis. All right? Now I want you to say this. I am peripoiesis. Okay, say that with me. I am peripoiesis, all right? Now, peripoiesis, this is an incredible word, all right? Now, what happens when the language scholars are translating the scriptures, oftentimes there's not an exact equivalent word for word from the Greek to the English, okay? And so what they have to do is they have to discern, okay, what did this Greek word mean, and then how do we best translate that into English? Well, the incredible thing is this single Greek word has actually three connotations built into it. Peripoesis has three simultaneous connotations. Number one, it means something that's been purchased, something that's been actively sought out or won. I envision kind of like storage wars, you know, these guys at the auction who are fighting over these different storage lockers, right? It means something that's been actively sought out and won and purchased. Number two, it means something that's been possessed as a valued possession and then thirdly, peripoiesis means something that is preserved or actively cared for. And it means all three of those things at the same time. Something that's been possessed, something that's been purchased, possessed, and preserved. And it means that all at the same time. You are peripoiesis. You've been purchased. You've been possessed. You are preserved. The first time I heard this word, the thing that immediately came to my mind right away was my Grandpa Krause's hardware store. Okay? My Grandpa Krause, uh, he owned a hardware store north of Green Bay for about 60 years. He built it up, he created it, he developed it. I mean, it was his life, along with his family and his faith, his hardware store and his lumberyard, it was his life for 60 years. And man, you got to hand it to this guy. He built this thing up from the ground floor. And he loved the hardware store. It was his baby. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I used to go and spend summers there working with my grandpa at his hardware store, an HWI hardware store, Krauss Lumber in northern, uh, northern Wisconsin. And my grandpa loved that hardware store. And you know, when he retired, he refused to sell his hardware store. 
In fact, uh, he tried to manage it through other people for a few years, but over time, you know, their small town kind of closed down and the hardware store closed down. But even then, my grandfather refused to sell the property. Because, you know, this would have been his life for 60 years. I mean, he, he created this thing. He cared for this thing. He had worked this thing. To him, it was his special possession. It was peripoesis. In fact, even to his dying day, my grandfather never sold his hardware store. No matter how much his family tried to encourage him, you know, you got to get rid of this. It's just a drag. You know, you're paying taxes on this thing. It's doing nothing for you. But I mean, even in his retirement, he'd go over there after it had been closed down and he'd still tinker around the shop and in the hardware. I mean, it was his life. It was his baby. It was really interesting. The summer after my grandfather died, our family was at the hardware store cleaning things up, preparing to sell, uh, sell everything off at an auction. And I was walking around in the back lot at the, in the lumber yard. And uh, walking through the big lumber bins, I came across a sign written in my grandfather's handwriting. It said, property of Mel, do not sell. Big exclamation point. I mean, it was almost like a voice from the grave. <laughs> I mean, we had been hearing this from my grandpa for years. No way, I'm never going to sell it. We had heard that for years, and here I find the sign the summer after his death, property of Mel, do not sell. Friends, just like that hardware store was peripoesis to my grandpa, that's, how you, that's who you are, according to Peter. You have been purchased you have been possessed and cared for. You have been actively preserved by God. You are peripoesis to him. And just like that sign we found for my grandpa, friends, I'm telling you, if you could see God's sign for you, written on your heart today, I guarantee you it would say, property of God's, loved forever. You are God's special possession. You are peripoesis. Transformational truth number one this morning. Peter tells us in Christ you are somebody. In Christ you are somebody. Transformational truth number two then here in this passage. You are somebody because Christ has done something. Now friends, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Jesus has done something. I'm saying he's done something. All right? My father, one of my father's favorite statements was, isn't that something? Or he'd say, that's really something. Right? And that's what I'm talking about. Jesus hasn't done something. He's done something. Right? Isn't that something? Jesus has done something. What's the something that Jesus has done? Well, in 1 Peter 2.10, Peter tells us once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have received mercy. Isn't that something? But what does that mean? Well, mercy means to receive pity or compassion. It's sometimes translated as loving kindness to receive pity or compassion. You know, one of my favorite stories of extending mercy was uh, two years ago when my buddy Aaron Smith and I were in uh, Guatemala. Mike Hoyland was with us. And uh, Aaron Smith and I, one afternoon when he had, we had some free time, we were walking around the city of Antigua, Guatemala. And we were in the city square and there are coffee shops and, you know, kind of tourist shops all around the city square there. And, and there in the city square, there are, there are uh, a whole bunch of homeless kids, little Guatemalan homeless kids who are shoeshine boys. And they're shoeshine boys and they, they try to scrape a living shining tourist shoes for pennies a day. And I mean, these kids, you know, they're just, they're homeless kids, they're grubby, they're filthy, their clothes are all tattered. And uh, it was really an amazing thing. One afternoon, Aaron and I were walking through this uh, central square. 
And uh, these two little boys, probably nine, ten years old, their faces were all smudged with dirt. They came running up to Aaron. He was wearing these, uh, these uh, leather work boots. They said, you know, can we shine your shoes? We shine your shoes. We shine your shoes, mister. We shine your shoes. You know, they're all excited. And, uh, you know, we had been there for about a week. And, you know, we seen these kids every day. And it was kind of like, no, thanks. You know, you kind of brush them off and keep walking. Well, on this particular day, Aaron stopped. And Aaron said, I'd love for you to shine my shoes. And Aaron sat down on this park bench, and these two little boys, you know, they were so excited. You know, they got down on their knees, and they got their rags and their shoe shine polish, and they're shining Aaron's shoes. And, and they, I mean, they, they did a beautiful job. They worked hard for about 15 minutes shining Aaron's shoes. Now, they're expecting Aaron to give them a little coin, a little Guatemalan Kate Sala, you know, just worth pennies. Aaron pulls out a $20 bill. And he gives these little boys a $20 bill. And friends, you should have seen the look in their faces. I mean, it was as if they had died and gone to heaven. They couldn't believe it. $20, I mean, this is more than they probably make in a whole year. Friends, that, that was mercy. Showing pity or compassion. You know, mercy is totally undeserved. But that's what makes it such an incredible act or gift. And this is what Peter says God has done for us. We have received mercy. You know, nothing about our standing, about our identity that we looked at from verse 9, none of that's of us. It's all because of what Christ has done for us. God has shown us mercy. Take a look at how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul describes God's act of showing mercy like this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Paul here says, even when we were dead in our sins, God, in his loving kindness, in his rich mercy, he saved us. You know, friends, this is unique amongst all the religions in the world. You know, every other religion in the world is based on some type of karma. You get what you deserve. But only in Jesus Christ do we find God offering us what we don't deserve. God, in his loving kindness, because of his rich mercy, has offered us a gift of grace. And friends, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what we're celebrating here during the month of December. That's what the little kids were proclaiming this morning from up on stage. God, in his great love, in his rich mercy, he offered us a gift. 2,000 years ago, he looked down upon a world that he created, a world that he loved, and he saw men and women separated from him because of our sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And friends, that's why God needed to do something to bridge that chasm. And my favorite verse in the Bible, you know, it's the one we all know from the football games on Sunday afternoons, John 3.16. That's the gospel, that's the message of Christmas. For God so loved this world that he sent his one and only Son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, 
but will have everlasting life. Friends, God has given us a gift, a way to be saved from our sins. Let me ask you, have you received the gift of Christmas? Are you one of God's chosen people? Are you one of God's special possessions? I want to encourage you, friends, if you've never received that gift, do so. Do so. There's nothing greater you'll ever do in your entire life than making Jesus your Savior and Lord. How do you do it? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the gift. That's God's mercy. That's God's grace. That's what Christmas is all about. (laughs) Quick review. In Christ, you are somebody because Christ has done something. Not something. He'd done something. And transformational truth number three this morning, you are somebody because Christ has done something so that you might reach someone. So that you might reach someone. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 again. Peter says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Why did God do all of this? Why did he show us mercy? Why did he make us these, give us this special identity? He did all of this so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The word declare here is an interesting word. In the Greek, the word is exangelo. And you want to know something? This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is found. It's an interesting word. It means to tell forth or to advertise. It means to tell something that is not now known. To tell something that is not now known. And what is not now known? What what are we called to tell forth? Friends, the world does not now know the wonderful light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does not know the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. In our world, so many people around us every day are missing out on that life to the full that Jesus offers them. They're missing out on it. They do not know the light of the hope of the gospel. And why don't they know this light? Because of 2 Corinthians 4.4. The Apostle Paul tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Friends, Satan has blinded the minds of people so that they do not see the light of the gospel, the hope, the life that's found in Jesus Christ. The world we interact with every day, the people around us every day, they are lost in darkness. They've been blinded and they cannot see the light. And friends, our job as followers of Jesus Christ is to shine that light. You know, it reminds me this just past summer in August, a bunch of guys from church here were up at my friend Matt Strew's cabin. His family has uh, a couple properties up in the Boundary Waters, hundreds of acres, wilderness acres up in the Boundary Waters. And uh, myself, uh, Aaron Smith again, and and, uh, Ron Backus, we had been out fishing all day. And uh, it was getting dark out, and, and night came upon us quicker than we realized. And, and you, know, you know, up in the Boundary Waters, these lakes, they're all connected. I mean, these chains of lakes that go for miles and miles. And we were out. We were like an hour away from, from camp, from the cabin where we were staying. 
and it got dark, and we're out in this little five-horsepower Robo, you know, and, uh, and we're, we're starting to get scared because it's getting cold. It's dark out. There's, we couldn't see anything. There was no moon out. There was clouds and fog all over the lake. I mean, the bats are flying around our heads. And, and we're starting to get scared because we're putting around this little five-horsepower rowboat, and, you know, there's islands all over the place and little channels that cut off, and, and, and we were lost. We had no idea where we were going. We were lost in the darkness. And we were putting around in these lakes, these chains, for like two hours trying to figure out our way back to the cabin. And all of a sudden, out in the distance, out in the darkness, piercing the darkness, was a single light a single light, and we pointed that boat towards that light, and we made our way towards that light. That light gave us hope, and that light led us safely back to the cabin. A single light from the cabin shining in the darkness. And friends, just like that light from the cabin gave us hope and led us to safety, God calls each one of us to shine in the darkness, to declare the praises of him, the God who's given us an identity, the God who's shown us mercy, the God who's called, called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people hide a, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Is your light shining, friends? You know, there's nothing like a brightly shining light to drive away the darkness. God has given us an incredible identity. He's given us an incredible calling as his people. When I was a freshman in college, I spent a month down in Ecuador. And uh, during my month in Ecuador, one of the things I got to do for my class was meet the ambassador of the United States to Ecuador. And the ambassador, as we talked to him, we found out that his whole job was to represent the interests of the United States in Ecuador. You want to know something incredible? The Bible calls us ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Take a look at what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul here In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. What do ambassadors do? They represent the interests of the nation that they come from. We represent the interests of God. Friends, what are God's interests? God's interests are people. God cares about people. God loves people. And we are called to go into the world to shine the light of the hope of the gospel in the darkness and to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Friends, there's nothing greater than living for Jesus Christ. In him, you are somebody because he has done something so that you might reach someone. Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful promises, these transformational truths you've shown us here today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Lord, we thank you for the special identity we have as your people. We thank you, God, that you showed us mercy, even when it was not deserved. But you gave us this gift and offered us a whole new life, salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, God, for the incredible calling that you've given us, the privilege of shining the light of the hope of the gospel so that everyone else might come to know the great hope and truth that's found in you. Lord, I, I pray, God, that the identity of who we are as your people would just be rooted so firmly and deep within us that we would never again have to worry about that great identity thief, Satan, and the lies that he tries to get us to believe. God, help us remember that we are special chosen people in you. And Lord, help us live boldly for you and share the hope of the gospel with people in our lives who are still lost in darkness. God, give us boldness in doing that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to just dismiss you this morning. Thank you for joining us today. Have a very Merry Christmas. Come back and join us again for our Christmas Eve services. God bless you this week. Amen. It's still a myth.